we're just so grateful to be here this morning, Lord. We're so grateful to be in your presence, to be able to worship you, to be able to lift up our prayers, to be able to fellowship with one another, to be able to open your word and study it, Lord. And as we open up John chapter 11 this morning, we pray that you would just pour your spirit out, Lord, and speak to us through the power of your word. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Scott's teasing me about the uh, hiking thing because... It's almost impossible to overestimate my laziness in regards to hiking. Now, I love to exercise. I love to work out. But just to walk somewhere, to turn around and walk back, I don't, it doesn't appeal to me. I mean, if you're hiking somewhere to go fishing or hunting or shooting or snowboarding, I, I understand that. I'm not opposed to that, but just... Walking for walking's sake, I don't get it. Anyway, that's, that's where the mockery came from. <laughs> um, in the opening verses of John chapter 11, you'll remember, Jesus' good friend Lazarus grew seriously ill. And so you remember his sisters, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, they sent a message to Jesus to come quickly so that he could tend to Lazarus. And so Jesus, we don't know exactly where he's at, but he's away. And so he receives this message, and curiously, he waited around a couple days before returning to Bethany to visit Lazarus. And during that time, of course, you remember, Lazarus passed away. Lazarus succumbed to his illnesses. He, he, he was dead and buried at this point. He's in the grave. And remember when Jesus finally arrives in Bethany, his sisters comes out, and they ask why Jesus delayed. Remember, Martha comes out. And remember, as we started to unpack the beginning of the chapter, we saw that Jesus had a reason. He, he, he let this, this situation unfold and play out for a specific purpose. Remember, we saw in verse 5, it says this, And now... Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And again, I want to just note there the very first word of verse 6. It says that Jesus loved Martha, and so, it says, because of his love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he waited two extra days. That seems strange, doesn't it? But we saw that Jesus was going to use the death of his friend to teach all of his disciples, you and I included, something about the nature of faith and the power of our Lord in regards to death in the grave. And remember we saw Martha come out and she began to question the Lord about why he delayed. Remember back in verse 20, Martha comes out. She, she meets Jesus while he's still on the way. And she says, Lord, if, if you would have been here, Lazarus would still be alive today. And you can almost sense the, the, the grief in her statement there. And I, I think that we can miss the faith that she showed as well. Believing that the Lord had the power to heal the sick had he only arrived in time. But she was missing the big picture here. 
And so remember, Jesus tells Martha, she says, listen, Lazarus is going to rise again. And Martha still didn't get it. She's going, I know, I know, he's in a better place. We'll meet again in heaven at the resurrection. But if he would have come, Jesus, he could still be with us here now. I remember in verse 25, Jesus utters those famous words. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then in verse 27, he says, Martha, do you believe this? Martha, do you believe that I have power over life and death? Martha, do you believe that the resurrection, that eternal life, the afterlife only come through me? And in essence, I think he's kind of saying, look, it doesn't make a difference to me whether I raise him then or, or in eternity. He says, I am the resurrection. Do you believe that, Martha? I remember Martha replies, yes, Lord, I believe. And so as we pick up the text here in verse 28, we find Lazarus, again, recently dead. He's been dead about four days. And so it says, when she, Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. So after all that previous stuff had transpired, verses 1 through 27, after Martha and Jesus had had this encounter just outside of Bethany, it says that Martha went and got her sister Mary. And she says, hey, listen, sis. Jesus is here. He's just outside of town, and he's asking for you. And so it says that Mary quickly arose and went out to see Jesus. And again, I think that we, we need to be careful as we're unpacking this story. Because I think almost all of us here, we know the whole story, right? We know what's about to transpire. But the people involved in the story... Mary and Martha and the disciples and the crowds, right? They didn't, they didn't know what was about to happen. Lazarus coming back to life, that wasn't even on their radar, right? That wasn't even something that they were dreaming about. And, and at this point, they had an idea, I think, of who Jesus was. But it was an incomplete idea. It was just a a shadow, really, I think, of who Jesus was. I think they knew, but it was just sort of a, a reflection, a, a glimmer of who Jesus really was. And so Mary, when she goes out, she's just going out to see her friend. Right? She's going out to see her rabbi. Right? She's going out to see her pastor in this time of grief. Now, verse 30, Jesus had not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So you see the situation. Mary gets up and goes to see Jesus. 
Remember, Martha had told her about Jesus' request in private. So Mary gets up, and she heads out. And so her friends there, they get up and follow her. They think that she's just grief-stricken. They think that she's going to her brother's grave to mourn. And it's important to note, I think, that her friends, they genuinely care about her, right? They're worried about her. They're there to console her. They see that she's grieving, and they go out to comfort her. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved, and his spirit greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So can you kind of picture the scene in your mind a little bit here? Jesus is there, bivouac outside of Bethany, camping out. He sends for Mary. Mary comes running. And there's a crowd of people coming after her, looking to comfort her. And she reaches Jesus. And she falls at her, his feet. And she lays her issues before the Lord. And as I was reading through this, I think there's a point of application for each of us here. Sometimes, and it's not the point of application that I think you might obviously think of, but sometimes I think we encounter people who are grieving. We encounter people who are, who are mourning or who are suffering. And a lot of times I think that we can have good motives and we can want to help and we can want to do the right thing. And sometimes I think we just kind of get in the way of what the Lord wants to do. Right? At this point, Mary needed one thing. She needed Jesus, right? She needed an encounter with the Lord. That's the one thing that she needed. And you know, that's what people need from us. They need Jesus. They need us to point them to Jesus. People don't need our wisdom. People don't need our great insight into life. They need Jesus. I've been a pastor for a long time now. I've been in ministry for longer than a lot of you guys have been alive. And, and so many times people come to me with an issue. And they say, Pastor, can you, can you just tell me what to do? And basically they're saying, Pastor, can you just tell me how to run my life? Listen, I can barely run my own life. Right? I can barely keep my keys and my wallet and my phone in one place. Every time I go anywhere, I have a little routine. Right? People think I'm a drummer or something. I'm just checking to make sure I got all my goods. Because I'm so scatterbrained. Right? You don't need my direction. You don't need my wisdom. You need Jesus. You need the power of the Holy Spirit directing your life. You need to seek the wisdom of the Lord, not, not me, not some pastor, not some whatever. You need Jesus. Mary is grieving here. Mary's in mourning, and she needed an encounter with the Lord. And I wonder how many of us 
are in that same spot this morning. But we've tried the world's wisdom. We've tried the world's way of doing things. And it didn't work. You know what you need? Jesus. That's what you need. You just need Jesus. Mary says, Jesus, if you would have been here, Lazarus would still be alive. Sort of the same thing that Martha said, right? Not an accusation, just a statement. Sort of a question, really. I think Mary is more of a question here. She says, Jesus, you know, why didn't you come? We know that you had the power to heal. You could have saved Lazarus and you didn't. Why? And we sort of see in, in her statement there this sense of, of confusion at the loss of a loved one. Have you ever been in that spot? You're just like, Lord, why? Why did you allow this to happen? I think I shared with you guys a while ago. I know I did. But about a year ago, well, maybe less than a year ago, Arkel, my son's best friend, got stabbed. And we got news that he was in the hospital and he'd been stabbed in the heart. And so our family, we were praying for him and it seemed like he was going to recover, but we continued to pray. And the next day we got word that he had succumbed to his wounds. And it was just such a, such a senseless thing. Such a waste of a young life. And, and, and this young man, Arkel, since the time that he was three, he grew up with our family. And, and, and when that happened, our family, we just, we wept. Our, our hearts broke for him. And, and we know his mom well, and our, our hearts broke for his mom. And she was just devastated. And a couple months later, her daughter, the next oldest one, died of pneumonia. And just things are just bam, bam, bam. And this was her third child to die. And you just look at these things, and you have to say, Why? Why is there so much suffering? I think I told you this story before. I, I'm old sometimes, I forget. But the lucky thing is most of you guys are too, so I forget what I've told you, you forget what you've heard. It, it works out. But so one time, this is probably 10 years ago or so, and um, I was at church and a, a neighbor from church came by and said, hey, my, my friend's granddaughter died. Can you... Can you do a funeral for her? So I said, sure, I can do that. And she said, well, it's a newborn baby. And I said, yeah, I can, I can do that. So I, I kind of got to know the situation a little bit. And what had happened is this mom was like six months pregnant. And her boyfriend beat her up. And so she went into labor prematurely and had the baby. And the husband, whatever, beat her up again because she was so weak that she had the baby. So the baby's there in intensive care, and they had to, to intubate the baby. And apparently the doctor was too rough and jammed it in, and so the baby died there in the hospital. And so they asked me to do the funeral. So I went to do the funeral, and so I go there, and they tell me, oh, we don't have the baby yet. Can you go pick, him up, pick her up from the morgue for us? I said, yeah, I can do that. And so we drive to the morgue, and at first they can't find the body, and they find it. And so they didn't have money for, like, a coffin, so they made this little homemade coffin. It was like a shoebox, 
wrapped in like tissue paper and kind of decorated. So we go pick up the baby. We go to the, the cemetery. And we get there, and the guy says, oh, sorry, there's no, more, there's no more room here. You can't bury your baby here. He said, but if you go to the, the office of the cemetery down there, you can maybe, it costs $75 or something. You can go down there, and then maybe we can clear a spot for you. And so I didn't really fu- fully realize the situation, but they had to go and talk to the guy and see if they could get a free spot because they're they pretty poor. And so we go down there, and it takes like two hours for them to finally secure a free spot so they can bury this baby. And so we get back, and we're ready, and it's just me and, and the grandma, and I, I don't know, remember if Denise was there, and, and the mom and dad, and maybe one other person. And we get back, and we're, we're getting ready, and, we, and the guy at the cemetery says, oh, I got tired of waiting. I ba- buried the baby without you. And, and, and this is like the saddest thing that I've ever been through in my whole life. And, and I look at that, just ask, why? Why, Lord? Why, why did you allow this to happen? There's, there's so much suffering. You know, and, and, and I wish I could tell you that through it, I know that 19 people got saved, and, and the Lord, but to my knowledge, nothing happened like that at this point. And I don't understand why. I don't know why. But I know this. I know the one who does know why. And I know that he is in control. And we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about Mary and Martha last week. But I think it's worth revisiting a little bit. I don't know why the Lord allows these things to happen, but I do know a couple of things. First of all, they happen because we live in a fallen, sinful, broken world that we created. That's not what God created for us. He created Eden. He created paradise. And we broke it. We screwed it up. And it wasn't you and me personally, but I said this before, if Adam had it, dumb it, you would have. Or I would have. One of us would have. And we'd still be where we are today because we're broken people. But the good news is this. God is able to use the broken, messed up things in our lives. He's able to change them and to recycle them and to to make them into something new and beautiful and and useful for the kingdom of God. In Jeremiah, it talks about he he gives us joy for our mourning and beauty for ashes. And, And I love that phrase there, beauty for ashes. I just imagine, you know, the the burn up, broken down things in our life. He takes those and he scoops them up and he reforms them and he reshapes them and he makes something useful and beautiful out of them. And again, it reminds me of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. Thirdly, We serve a transcending God, a God who enters into the lives of his people, right? We don't have a a deistic faith. We don't have a faith where we believe that, yeah, God exists, and he just kind of set things in motion at some point in history, then he just sort of 
sits back and, and lets things unfold with no intervention. Right? There's a lot of people who believe that, but that's not what the scriptures teach. Scriptures teach that we serve an intersecting God who crosses over into our lives. But lastly, we talked about this before as well. God is looking at the big picture, right? God is looking at the eternal perspective, right? We're finite. We're temporal beings, and we tend to look at the here and now. But God's looking at the bigger picture. Let me give you a, a hypothetical situation or ask you a question. How many of you guys would rather have $100 million or $0? Right, what, what do you want? I think all of us here would say, right, I'd rather have a, $100 million, right? But let me ask you this. How many times have you been at some point in your life in dire straits financially, been in a desperate position, and it forced you to seek the Lord, right? It forced you to call on the name of the Lord. And, and over the course of that process, the Lord moved, and he took care of you, and he provided for you. And what was the end result? Your faith is built up, and you grow to trust him more and more. Which is better for you eternally? To have $100 million or to have your faith built up? I think that's why most of us aren't millionaires. That's why a lot of us are hundredaires, right? Because the Lord needs to keep us relying on him. And you take this case here with Lazarus. What was going to have more of an eternal impact? What was going to impact people's faith in a greater way? If Jesus came and quietly healed this man? Or if he waited four days and let him die? And then raised him from the dead? Obviously the latter, right? And they couldn't see that at the time. They didn't understand that when they were going through it. But we, looking back on it, it's obvious which one had more impact. Look at verse 35 again for a minute. It says that Mary was weeping. I'm sorry, not verse 35. That's a couple of verses before that. Mary was weeping there. And the Jews were weeping. And it says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I like this picture that we see of Jesus here. Jesus was a man... Of, of, of deep emotions. We live in a culture where being emotional is generally kind of looked down on, isn't it? Right? How many times have you heard and say, oh, I'm so sorry for crying at the loss of a loved one or at something tragic? Why? Why should we be sorry for that? I don't know if it's maybe our, our British influence, you know, you have to keep a stiff upper lip and all that kind of stuff. But I confess, I, I'm kind of like that. I'm kind of closed off emotionally. Right, one of the great American philosophers of our time, Ron Swanson, famously said, crying is acceptable at funerals in the Grand Canyon. And uh, Some of you guys don't know who Ron Swanson is, and you didn't get that at all. I went to the Grand Canyon, and I didn't cry. Right? 
I'm not very emotional. I'm kind of closed off. And I don't know that that's the right way that we should be. Right? Jesus here, he saw this pain in others. And even though he knew the eventual outcome, he was deeply moved. He was greatly troubled, it said. That, that word greatly troubled is the same word used in, in John chapter 5, verse 7. Remember when, when, when the, the paralyzed man was talking about the angel would come down and he would stir up the waters there at Bethesda. That's the same word to stir up, to, to trouble the waters. I think some translations actually say that even. The angel came and would trouble the waters. But the idea there is that he was, that he was stirred up. And it says though that he was, he was deeply moved. And that word in the Greek, it speaks of being moved with, with indignation. There's almost a sense in, in the original language that Jesus was angry at death and at the pain that it caused. And so Jesus says, where's he at? Where did you bury Lazarus? And they say, come, we will show you. And then this verse 35, shortest verse in the Bible, two words. It says, Jesus wept. And we look at Jesus throughout the Gospels. And Jesus is a man's man, right? He's a construction worker. He's an outdoorsman. He's the kind of guy that spent time fishing with his buddies. He spent a lot of time alone camping in the wilderness. Forty days once, right? He went out camping with no food. That's a, that's a hardcore outdoorsman. We see him there in the temple, kicking over tables, cracking a whip, angry at injustice. Right? This is a man. But we also see that he's not afraid to shed a tear. He's not afraid to be vulnerable. He's not afraid to uh, express a, a full range of emotions. And I think there's a lot that some of us guys can learn from that there. Jesus weeps. He says, take me to his grave. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some said, could, he not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? It's interesting, isn't it? Some of the crowd said, oh, look, Jesus really loved his friend deeply. Others said, look at this character. Look at this guy. He could heal the line. The blind, he could heal the lame. Why, why couldn't he stop his friend from dying? And there's almost the sense of, of, of derision there, almost the sense of, of mockery. And we're going to see that again later in a few chapters at the cross, right? People said almost the exact same thing. Oh, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? This mocking attitude. we look at this and we see three different attitudes really expressed at the death of, of Lazarus. And they all kind of come from the same place, but definitely different attitudes. We saw Martha's attitude, Mary's attitude, and these doubters. Martha, she says in faith, even now, Jesus, I know whatever you ask from God, he will give to you. Mary, seemingly with a little bit of confusion and question, Lord, why, why did you delay? How come you didn't come? The doubters say it in this mocking way. See, your God isn't able to deliver like he says. 
it's interesting how many different responses there are to, to grief and suffering. I think of Job's response, and we talked about this a while back, I think. Remember, Job's, Job got all this bad news. His house fell down, his kids died, his fly, every, he lost everything. And remember what he says? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I think that's the same heart we see in Martha here, right? She had this, this heart of faith. Your will be done, Lord. We see Mary's questioning, Mary's confusion. And then we see the doubting crowd. If God is real and he really loves me, why did he allow this circumstance to happen in my life? See, he must not be real. So there's these three camps. But here's the cool thing. We get to choose what camp we want to be in. We get to choose which team we're going to be on. And even if you find yourself in the skeptics camp or the doubters camp, you get to choose. You can change teams if you want to. You can choose to trust Jesus. You can choose to take a step of faith. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Again, Jesus feels this deep sense of grief, seeing his friends suffer. And he arrives at the place where Lazarus was entombed, a cave with a stone sitting in front of it, similar to where Jesus would be buried shortly. And Jesus says, roll that stone away. And I don't know what people thought. Maybe they thought Jesus just wanted a little closure. Maybe they thought he wanted to see his friend one last time. But Martha says, whoa, hold on just a minute. He's been dead four days already. There will be an odor. Anybody have a King James in here? What's it say? He stinketh. I love that. He said, Jesus, Martha says, whoa, Jesus, he's been dead four days. He stinketh. There's going to be a smell. I remember once we, um, we had this tropical storm in Belize, and there was a couple feet of water on the ground. And at the time, we were living in this house that was about, probably about eight feet off the ground. And so when the water began to rise, all the rats and mice and stuff needed a place to go like a house that's about eight feet off the ground. So they moved in. And, and so we spent the next, I don't know, month probably, trying to kill these mice and rats that were in our house. I pulled out our stove one time and looked behind the counter, and there's just like tons of them, and they're all moving around. But at one point, one of them died. And I don't think, did we ever find that, babe? I don't, it, it took a long time to find this thing. And the house stunk. To high heaven. And, and you've been around dead things. You know that smell that she's talking about. And Mary's correct here. She says, look, we're in the desert. We're in the Middle East. He's been in there four days. There's decay setting in. Lazarus was probably pretty malodorous, right? He wasn't smelling good at this point. And Jesus replies to her in verse 40. Did I not tell you that if you, if you believe you would see the glory of God? I think at times we miss 
what the Lord wants to do in our lives. Sometimes we, we resist what he wants to do in our lives because, I don't know, because it doesn't make sense, right? Because we don't get it, because we don't understand, right? The Lord wants to do something, maybe it defies logic, maybe it defies physics, Maybe it defies, you know, the very laws of nature. And, and we, say, we, just, we push back against what the Lord wants to do. But here's what we need to understand. The Lord isn't bound by those same laws that we are. Sometimes we just have to say, Lord, your will be done. I don't get it. I don't understand what you're doing. It doesn't make sense to me. But I trust you. And I want to see what you're going to do in this situation. I want to see you glorified in my life. I want to see your glory. So verse 41, they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew, I knew that you always hear me. But I said on this account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. It's an interesting prayer, isn't it? We don't have a ton of Jesus' public prayers. It doesn't seem like he prayed in public that often. But here we find Jesus praying publicly. And it almost seems like he's praying publicly for the benefit of those who are listening. And he doesn't pray for the Father to raise Lazarus from the dead, does he? He thanks the Lord for hearing his prayers. He says, Lord, I know that you always hear me. But for on account of the people here, I'm glad that you hear me so that they may believe. And I think it's sort of a convoluted sentence structure there. It's not super clear. But I think the idea is that Jesus has already been praying about this situation beforehand. And he already knew what the Father was going to do. And so he says, I'm thankful for this situation, Lord. I'm thankful for, about, for what's about to happen so that they can believe in you who sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, as we think about this verse, I want you to forget how many times you've read this story or heard it taught. Forget that you already know the outcome. Forget that you already know about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Put yourself here in Bethany 2,000 years ago. Imagine that you're one of Mary and Martha's friends. You hear that Lazarus died, and you come to visit your friends, to just to be there for them, to, to console and to comfort them. And maybe you know that Mary and Martha are friends with this Jesus character. Right, this itinerant preacher who's traveling through the land with a bunch of unschooled ruffians and a few old fishermen. Maybe you know Jesus as, as this mystic or this miracle worker conjuring up wine at weddings. Maybe you've heard Jesus teach at some point. You know that he's a, a dynamic public speaker. 
but you find yourself here in Jesus' presence outside of Lazarus' grave. And he just prays this strange prayer. And then suddenly, Jesus lifts up his voice. Lazarus, come forth! And Lazarus comes out. And I want to just for a second note the description here. Right? It says that his hands and feet were bound and he had a cloth over his face. We know that those, those burial clothes that he had and that day, they were probably up to about 120 pounds. He had all the cloth and all the, the herbs and spices and all that stuff there. If Lazarus came out, there's only one way that he could have came out. He would have been hopping out, right? He's bound up. He's, he's a mummy. He's, I think the only way that he could, this is like a cartoon here. And Jesus' first words are, unbind him. Unwrap this poor guy before he falls over. And I almost wonder if Jesus is kind of playing a little bit at this point now. But think about the impact that this would have had. This guy who was dead. And it's not just like he was dead for a couple seconds and they got the paddles out. Right? He is dead for four days. Already in rot and decay. And it's been said that Jesus had to specify and say, Lazarus, come out. Or everybody in the whole cemetery would have come. But David Guzik said this, and I thought it was kind of interesting. He said something to the effect of Jesus here was putting death on notice. Letting it know that its reign was almost over. Because shortly after this, Jesus himself would defeat death when he rose from the dead. But Jesus here, he calls Lazarus out of the grave. And Lazarus comes hopping out alive. And imagine you saw that. How would that impact you? How would that impact your thoughts concerning Jesus? We'll see next week that many of the people, it says, believed. But there were still some people who didn't believe. They saw Jesus call Lazarus out of the tomb after four days. And they still didn't believe. If that didn't make you believe, what would? Right? If that didn't make you believe, what would it take for you to believe? You know, there's some who have heard the gospel so many times. Maybe some have been here this morning who, who aren't believers yet. And you've heard the teachings of Jesus over and over again, and you still haven't put your faith and your trust and your hope in him. Let me ask you this. If you don't believe yet, what is it going to take for you to believe? And we have a record of all the things that Jesus did, how he healed the sick and the lame and the crippled, the leprous and the blind. We know that Jesus calmed the storm. We know that he walked on water. We know that he fed 5,000 people with a little bit of bread and a couple fishes. We see Jesus raising the dead here. We know that Jesus came back from the dead himself. What else does he have to do to prove to you that he is who he says he is? 
what's it going to take? Jesus says here in this passage, he says, look, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one who has power over life and death. Believe in me. As we close this morning, I want to focus on two things real quick. First, as we said before, even when it seems like life's circumstances are completely out of control, we can trust in him. We know that he has a bigger plan. We know that he has a a, a bigger picture. We know that he's operating from an eternal perspective. And we know that he's more concerned about our spiritual growth and our eternal well-being than he is about our temporal comfort. And sometimes he's using our tragedy and our suffering and our hard times to grow us up spiritually. And sometimes he's using those same things for us to be a witness to the lost using our suffering and our tragedy to reveal his glory and his majesty and his splendor to the unsaved. And second, as we just talked about, if you don't believe, what's it going to take? What is it that you're waiting for? What, What sign is it that you think you need to believe? What more convincing do you need than Jesus Christ himself rising from the dead? Do you want eternal life? Do you want to be forgiven of your sins? Do you want to be set free from the bondage of addiction? Call in the name of Jesus and be saved and be delivered and be set free. Be forgiven. And you know, it really is that simple. Paul says in Romans, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And again, he says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And that's it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to clean yourself and be good for about three weeks before you can call on him. He simply says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who believes, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And that's the question. Do you believe that? If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're in luck. It's your lucky day. All you have to do is call on the name of the Lord and be saved and be set free and be forgiven. I want to close with that. And if anybody needs prayer as we continue to worship, please come forward. Let myself or Pastor Scott back there or any of the elders grab one of us and let us pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you're a sovereign God. We thank you that you're in control of all things at all times, Lord, and that you work all things together for good. 
for us who are called according to your name, for those of us who love you, Lord. And Father, I just pray for anybody who's struggling or is in confusion and doubt and doesn't understand why you've allowed certain things to happen in their life, Lord. We pray that you would just send your spirit to bring comfort and to bring peace and just to guide them through this difficult time, Lord. And Father, if, if there's anybody here who, who doesn't know you yet, Lord, we pray that you would just move in their hearts and that you would draw them to yourself, Lord Jesus. Pray you just bring them to a place of repentance where they could call on your name and be saved. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen.